Good evening and welcome. Uh, sorry, for, we're starting a few minutes late. I have a feeling some of the people who are trying to get in are struggling with parking. Our apologies for that. There's an event across the street at Oakwood, which we didn't realize. And so, again, apologies if you struggle to park. I'm Tim Westermeyer, one of the pastors here at St. Philip the Deacon Lutheran Church. On behalf of St. Philip the Deacon and Mount Olivet Lutheran Church of Plymouth, who jointly present the Faith and Life Lecture Series as a community service. It's my privilege and pleasure to welcome you here tonight. It's good to have you all here at the beginning of our sixth annual season, which is hard for me to believe. A word about the flow for the evening. After our speaker talks for 45, 50 minutes, we'll have a chance for some open microphone Q&A. And so if you have questions you'd like to ask, be thinking about that. And we'll try to get around to as many of you as we can during that session. Following that, We'll have an uh, informal reception in the Fellowship Hall, which is directly across from the sanctuary through the narthex. You can also purchase books out in the narthex, and if you do get one or if you brought one, our speaker will be happy to inscribe them for you at a table down on this end of the narthex. The Faith and Life Lecture Series began six years ago now because I felt that our community needed uh, more public forums for people to come together and hear about how our Christian faith is connected to our everyday life. If you've followed the series over the last five years, we, you know we've had a wide variety of speakers and topics, everything from authors and professors to business people and artists talking about faith and lifelong learning, faith and finance, faith and humor, faith and cartoons, faith and calligraphy. And this year, again, we have another wonderful lineup, which begins with a discussion about faith and questions, or faith and doubt. And to help us think about that is someone who has spent his career straddling two different worlds, one medical science and the other the world of ministry. He began his career after graduating from Augustana uh, College in Rock Island, which by the way is a Lutheran college, which he pointed out in our uh, meeting before this. Go Lutherans. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> he went to North Park Seminary in Chicago and thought he was going to be a pastor, but the medical bug caught him and he ended up going to medical school. He thought he was going to work as a general practitioner and through a series of events, which perhaps he'll share, he ended up starting as a journalist with a little show called Good Morning America. Today, he serves on the staff of Harvard Medical School, of Boston General, what is it, Massachusetts General Hospital, is that correct? Okay. And he also serves as the national medical editor of ABC News, where he appears on Good Morning America, 2020, Nightline, and ABC World News Tonight. He also, for a number of years, has been the assisting minister of Community Covenant Church in West Peabody, Massachusetts. Will you please help me welcome Dr. Timothy Jackson? Tim. It always sounds strange to call somebody Tim, doesn't it? <laughs> I am indeed happy to be back among Lutherans for many reasons. Uh, I'm a graduate of Augustana. Our denomination, the Evangelical Covenant Church, was a renegade breakaway during the 19th century from the state Lutheran Church and got transplanted over here in the migrations of uh, that century. And we have quite a few covenant congregations in this area. And indeed, I've already seen some very familiar faces from my own particular denomination. Uh, I'm going to introduce a lady here tonight, and she is going to kill me for this. I mean, no doubt about it. But I just bumped into a, a woman that has meant a lot in my life and her late husband. And I'm going to tell you the story very briefly. In 1968, between my junior and senior year in medical school, my wife, who's a nurse, and I went on a fellowship to work in a small hospital in Indonesia, up in the mountains of northern Indonesia, in a little village called Tomahawk. And in order to do that, we had to arrange a sponsorship, and I arranged a sponsorship through a covenant medical missionary named Dr. Phil Anderson. People in this area, many will know of him. And uh, Phil picked us up at the airport in Minado and drove us up into the hills to the village where we were going to spend the next four months. And on the way up, he said to Nancy and I, I have a little boy all picked out for you. And I thought, what's he talking about? Uh, but as it turned out, uh, there was a little boy, an 18-month-old boy who had been uh, abandoned there at the hospital before we arrived. And uh, one night, 
I uh, took him with us to a little birthday party for one of the Indonesian nurses. My wife had not met him, but I'd gotten to know him in the hospital. And uh, we took him after the party to our house to give him a bath and clean him up a little bit. And then we said, well, let's keep him overnight, bring him back in the morning. And in the morning, <laughs> I'm getting a little emotional. He stayed with us. And um, he's now 41, lives three blocks from us with his wife and two grandchildren. So Irene Anderson, will you stand up? Where are you? wonderful hosts and uh, indeed had a little boy picked out for us. We were not ready to start a family, but it happened anyway. Uh, I'll answer your question about how I got involved in this because several have asked me in the earlier meeting, uh, very briefly. Uh, about three weeks before I was to graduate from medical school, I went down to the student lounge to watch the evening news in those days, late 1960s. It was the Huntley-Brinkley report that we watched. And it just so happened on this particular night that um, they carried a report from Chicago where that day the AMA had held a press conference to announce their opposition to the proposed appointment of a Dr. John Knowles, who was at that time the head of the Mass General Hospital, to oppose his proposed appointment as Undersecretary of Health. The AMA was opposing his appointment because they felt he was too liberal. He was advocating something called universal health care. Had the AMA uh, held auditions to find the worst possible spokesperson for their cause, they could not have done better than this ancient trustee who came out and read a prepared statement. And when he was done <clears throat> and the press started asking him questions, he discombobulated so badly that uh, his handlers had to lead him off the stage. And when they came back to Huntley and Brinkley, they were laughing so hard at this performance, they had to go to a commercial break to regain their composure. The very next morning, by obviously sheer coincidence, in my mailbox was a form letter from the AMA inviting me to join as an about-to-be new doctor. And so on pure impulse, there's no other way to explain it, I, I took the form and with a pen or pencil wrote something like, well, if I, what I saw in the evening news last night is any indication of your uh, policy and your performance, I do not care to join, thank you. And I dropped it in the mailbox, <laughs> never expecting to hear another word. And to my utter amazement, about three weeks later, I got a long personal letter from the executive uh, director of the AMA at that point talking about this Dr. Knowles in ways that just sounded off base to me. So I sent the letter off to this Dr. Knowles in Boston, whom I'd never met, and uh, we became pen pals as a result of that. And when I ended up in Boston, we met and became good friends. And it just happened that he was part of a group in Boston uh, mostly Harvard people, that took over the license to operate the ABC station in 1972. And because of his input, they wanted to do a health program for the public in the morning. And he asked if I would host it, and I agreed to try it. Uh, I'd go in and do it in the morning and then go work at the hospital the rest of the day. And that's quite literally how I got started in TV. So the way I look at it is if I hadn't gone down to watch the evening news that night, I wouldn't be standing here tonight, right? <laughs> I mean, really. Can't... Uh, everyone here can look back on their life, can't you, and think of a decision you made at the time you had no idea it was going to change your life or send you in a different direction or put you on a path that leads to tonight. It's, it's something we can all look back on. In my case, it was a fairly dramatic decision. had no idea at the time, of course. I just signed this little letter and sent it off. Well, I've been privileged to work in a, in a wonderful place, ABC News, all these years. Uh, has given me enormous professional freedom. Uh, and I've also been privileged to be a person of faith in a secular setting. And when I say that, I mean that for me, the ability to think through my faith is something that I really am grateful for. The, the setting in which I've been, in a secular setting, first in medicine and then in media, has always, I think, given me the stimulation to think about my beliefs more than I might have otherwise. And over the years, I've had many dialogues with many good secular friends about issues of faith in general and issues about Christianity in particular. Everybody knows that I'm a, an ordained minister, that I'm a person of faith, 
And so that has led to the opportunity to have so many of these dialogues over the years. And a few years ago, I decided to sit down and write out the answers to some of the questions that I would get continuously and, and frequently. And that's literally how this book came about. It was my attempt to take some time and think through the answers to the questions that would keep coming up in these dialogues that, that I was able to have. And so this is my attempt to tell a little about my own pilgrimage of faith. And I'm going to share just obviously small parts of it with you tonight in the hope, uh, as I had in writing the book, that it will stimulate you to think about your questions and your pilgrimage of faith. My mind has always worked uh, to first of all wrestle with the question, does God exist? It's a good place to begin because if you can't answer that question somewhat affirmatively, why bother with anything about religion? If you don't believe there's a God, there's not much sense in thinking about religion per se, any religion. Uh, but if you can come to the conclusion that it's at least not unreasonable to think there is a creator God, then you start thinking more about what is this God like? And for Christians, the answer has always been, well, God is sort of like Jesus. Jesus tells us something, at least, that we can understand about what God might be like. So that's very helpful. But even then, if you end up with that belief and that information, the, the ultimate question has to be, what difference does it make in my life? There's not much sense in saying you believe something unless it really does affect the way you live and the decisions you make. And so that's the third part of this book. So I'm gonna just go through those three parts in, in very short and fashion, obviously. So the first question, does God exist? What we're really asking in a secular way is, is the universe an accident? Is it more likely that this universe happened by pure chance and accident versus some kind of intelligence or design, to use a popular current word? That's a really interesting question when you start digging to the findings of modern science, especially modern physics and cosmology. I happen to enjoy reading that stuff even though I confess, I do not understand most of it, or no more than half of it probably. But for me, it's sort of like reading poetry, as bizarre as that may sound, because the findings of modern physics and cosmology in particular are so fantastical that really you couldn't make it up if you tried. And you all know about the story of, of modern physics and cosmology and the Big Bang. And when you start looking at the, the material that modern physicists describe, it's quite stunning because it would appear, looking at physics at least, that, that the, the Big Bang was something that was meant to be, that the fine-tuning, the cosmic coincidences, as we sometimes call them, that had to exist in order for that to really work are really remarkable. And I go through a lot of that in the book at one point. One, somebody told me in the room before that that was a bit of tough sledding for her to read that part, and I agree, it is a bit of tough sledding. But I find it fascinating, and I try to share it in that way. So for example, one of many examples, uh, physicists have determined that if the explosive force of the Big Bang had been off by as little as one part in 10 to the minus 59, that means you go point and then 59 zeros and a one. That, that's so infinitesimal that it's incomprehensible to our minds. But they say that if the explosive force had been too much or too little by just that small amount, the Big Bang would have resulted in a disaster. A little bit off too much and it would have exploded and flown apart. Too little, it would have collapsed back on itself. Turns out the explosive force was, as some religious people like to say, just right. Uh, another scientist, physicist, once tried to estimate that the accuracy of that kind of explosive force is about the same as firing a bullet across the known universe 20 billion light years across and hitting a one-inch target on the other side. I don't think you can prove that, but what he was trying to say is it's, again, incomprehensible. So these kinds of fine-tunings, cosmic coincidences, forces that were just right at the time uh, have led many agnostic, religiously speaking, physicists to say, that's too much to be just pure chance or coincidence. Uh, Fred Hoyle, who coined the phrase, the Big Bang, himself very agnostic religiously, looked at this material and once said, the chance of that happening by chance is about the same as a tornado passing through a junkyard and leaving a fully assembled 
and operative 747 in its wake. <laughs> that really uh, upset his colleagues in physics. They thought that was go going a bit too far. But he, on another occasion, he said, the whole thing, if you look at it, honestly, looks like a put-up job. So if you look at the world of physics and cosmology, it's, it's pretty convincing. But if you look at the world of biology, it's not so convincing. And, and I have to be an honest reporter. Uh, evolution has resulted in hundreds of thousands of species, most of which have become extinct over time. So if there's a designer, as some would say, it didn't look like it was very intelligent when you look at the world of biology. And the biggest problem, the biggest problem in the world of biology for me and for many people always has been the problem of undeserved suffering. So much of human suffering can be explained by our bad choices or by the bad choices of the collective organizations we call governments. But what about cancer in a child? How do you explain that if there's a good God and a good designer? And I will tell you so honestly that this for me is still such a terrible conundrum. And for most of the friends that I've talked with about faith, it's their biggest problem. And I suspect for many of you, if you were to be honest, you would say the same. And I really wrestled with that in the writing of this book because I know how deep-seated that issue is for so many of us. And I'm going to read you what I finally put down on paper to see if it might be helpful to you. At this point, I will describe what is for me the most helpful way to approach this terrible dilemma, namely the age-old exercise of trying to play God and come up with an alternative to the world we now have, though it sounds arrogant even to suggest alternatives to the universe as is, it's only fair if I am willing to complain about the present one. But every time I try to do so, I end up admitting that I can't imagine a world much different than the one we know. Certainly when I contemplate the unimaginable sufferings of so many in our world, I would readily vote for a world without any suffering. Yet when I think more logically rather than simply voting with my heart, I find such a possible world less appealing than it first might appear. For example, imagining a world with neither suffering nor death, the ultimate cause of human anxiety, also conjures up a world in which we humans would be incredibly smug pursuing life without any worry or concern. So I find myself torn between the natural desire for a world without suffering, where we would feast forever on a cosmic silver platter, and the present one, where there is at least the possibility of striving to overcome pain and suffering with honest love and real choice. Does this mean that I can conclude with the previous thinkers on this subject that even with all of its problems, this world is, after all, is said and done, quote, the best of all possible worlds? It may indeed be the best of all possible worlds that I can imagine with my limitations as a human being, but I would hope that the God who I believe created this universe has a bigger and better plan in mind than what I can see so far as I see in a glass darkly. In other words, if I can't believe there is more to the created universe than what I now perceive in this journey we call human life, then I am the first to admit my disappointment with the plan of God as I have been exposed to it thus far. This sounds like heresy, doesn't it? Put another way, if I can't believe in some future existence beyond the earthly journey we experience from birth to death, then I must reluctantly conclude that God did not get it right, at least this time. Put still another way, the present world of earthly existence is at times so unfair, and there is simply no other way to describe the suffering of innocent human beings that it cries out for ultimate justice. And if that does not happen in this earthly existence, which it clearly does not in too many cases, then I believe it must happen in some future time if there is a God of justice and love, which is the only kind of God I care to believe in. So I'm punting with a leap of faith. I'm saying I can't figure it out. It's not fair. There's no logical answer I am capable of delivering. And so I have to believe that someday the gl glass that we now see through darkly will become clear. 
and there will be a redress of the injustice that's a part of our human life. So when you think about it all, the precision of physics, the mess of biology, you, you would sometimes want to just cry out and say to God, why don't you just make it all clear once and for all so there's no more doubt. So I don't have to worry about all these questions. Rip open the sky, put on a fireworks display that'll just make it clear who's in charge. But of course, if that happened, we would all fall to our knees in servitude, uh, but we wouldn't freely choose faith, would we? There would be no free choice under that circumstance. Kierkegaard wrote a lovely little parable about the king who fell in love with a maiden in his kingdom, and he wanted to woo her. But how could he woo her as king without overwhelming her and taking away her free choice to love him? He couldn't just give her gifts. That wouldn't do it. So he disguised himself as a commoner and lived among his people and wooed her in disguise. And that's what the Christian message ultimately is all about in some ways. What we say ultimately is, if you want to know what the creator God is like, you have to look at this person we call Jesus, who in some way, and I'll make this more clear, is God in disguise, God living among us in a human way that we can relate to and understand that does not overwhelm us and force us into faith, but allows us the free choice of faith. So when we ask what this God is like, we Christians say God is like Jesus. If you look at the life and teachings of Jesus and try to understand them, you will get a glimpse sometimes, much more at other times, of what this creator God is really like and all about. I did something in, in the writing of this book that I had never done before, which is I sat down and read the four Gospels straight through over a two-day period. Like many of you, I'd heard them in bits and pieces, read them in bits and pieces over the years, but I had never read them straight through. It was an absolutely remarkable experience. I urge any of you who have never done that to do so. And when I finished, <clears throat> I remembered some words from Scott Peck in his second book called Further Along the Road Less Traveled. You may remember he wrote a huge bestseller called The Road Less Traveled. And in between the writing of that book and his second one, he actually became formally a Christian and was baptized as such. And he did what I've just described. He read the gospel straight through. And when he was done, he wrote the following, which I could absolutely identify with after my experience in so doing. He said, I was absolutely thunderstruck by the extraordinary reality of the man I found in the Gospels. I discovered a man so incredibly real that no one could have made him up. It occurred to me then that if the Gospel writers had been into PR and embellishment as I had assumed, they would have created the kind of Jesus three quarters of Christians still seem to be trying to create portrayed with a sweet, unending smile on his face, patting little children on the head, just strolling the earth with this unflappable, unshakable equanimity. But the Jesus of the Gospels, who some suggest is the best-kept secret of Christianity, did not have much peace of mind, as we ordinarily think of peace of mind in the world's terms. And insofar as we can be his followers, perhaps we won't either. It is as if most Christians haven't read the Gospels, and most, sorry about this, Tim, most Christian clergy are not even able to preach the real truth of the Gospels, <laughs> because if they did, their congregations would flee out the door. <laughs> read them. You'll feel the same way. It'll shock you in some ways. This is no distant godlike figure. This is a real human being living among us in the kind of reality we live in. And I could and maybe should spend the whole night trying to talk about the life and teachings of Jesus, way beyond the time we have. But I, I will try to summarize what I think about them by saying the following. Jesus was a pious Jew who took his inherited religion that emphasized purity and holiness, all of the laws of the Old Testament, and built upon that foundation and transformed that foundation into, if I may use this phrase, a religion of love and mercy. I, 
think the central teaching of Jesus is that this God of the Old Testament, the holy God, the pure God, the almighty God, is even better described and known as a heavenly father who loves his children unequivocally. C.S. Lewis was once asked, what's really unique about the Christian religion? And without hesitation, he said, it's the concept of grace. Philip Jancy, who I understand you had as a speaker here at one time, wonderful book that I assume you've all read, What's So Amazing About Grace. In that book, he defines grace by saying, grace means stopping because I want you to hear this. Philip Yancey said, grace means that there is nothing you can do to make God love you any more or any less. Think about that. There's no goody-goody stuff you can do to make God love you more, and there's no terrible sin you can commit to make God love you less. That's quite remarkable. That's what Jesus taught. In summary, I think that's the essence of what he taught. And so we look at the life and teaching of Jesus and we find our way in terms of how we should live. Now, in this second section of the book, I spend quite a bit of time trying to deal with some traditional Christian theology in terms of more secular ways of understanding. And for example, the word salvation, those of us who have grown up in the church learn language about salvation that involves concepts that are absolutely foreign to people who have not read the Bible or grown up in the church. So if I want to talk to them about what salvation might mean, rather than using the language of traditional Christian theology, I say to them, think about how we use that word in everyday modern use. Somebody is saved from a burning building, or we say that somebody is saved from a life of degradation. What we mean is, I think maybe the best synonym could be the word rescue. What God and Jesus does, if we listen to that life and to those teachings, is we are rescued from the path we might have otherwise been on. We are turned around. We are put on a new path. We are saved from our prior life. It's, in one sense, as simple as that. Uh, and we tend to make it way more complicated than we need to, I think. So <clears throat> I struggle with all of these kinds of concepts. In, in terms of thinking about how I dialogue with my secular friends. <clears throat> and I come to a point in the second section where I say, I no longer really like to call myself a Christian. I prefer to call myself a follower of Jesus because I think the word Christian has lost all precision in our society. I mean, really, if Bishop Spong and the late Jerry Falwell or uh, his modern successors, whoever that might be, Pat Robertson, if those people can all call themselves Christians, and they do, what precision does the word have? That covers a huge range of belief and lifestyle and whatever. But if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, I think what you're trying to say is you're going to go back to the Gospels, you're going to understand the life and teachings of Jesus, you're going to make it a part of your life, and you're going to try to live in that way. And that's a place where we can all meet regardless of our backgrounds, regardless of our theological understandings, we can say we're going to be like the original disciples, right? We're going to follow Jesus in the way we live. So <clears throat> that brings us to the third section of the book, which is an attempt to answer the question, if I believe there's a creator God and he's revealed himself in, in ways that we can begin to understand in the life and teachings of Jesus, what difference does it make for me? Will I be any different? Will I live any differently? And this is really where the, the to use the old cliche, the rubber meets the road. Now, in a, in a kind of academic discussion, if you ask people to start talking about the ethic of Jesus, the, the teachings of Jesus, sooner or later and pretty quickly, the Sermon on the Mount will come up. That's the part of Jesus' teachings that are most famous, even among secular people. And I'm going to remind you what the Sermon on the Mount is really about by reading just a few of the original Beatitudes, Matthew 5 through 7. Listen to these Beatitudes. Listen to them. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek. 
for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, <clears throat> for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. How many of you really believe Jesus meant us to live that way? I'm curious. Just raise your hand. Do you think he meant it? I'm curious. I mean, I know this is a little unusual, but do you think he meant it? You do? Okay, then my next question is, how many of you live that way day by day? <laughs> I mean, really, it's an impossible standard. If you listen to that, it's impossible. So what's going on here? Was Jesus trying to set the bar so high that we try and at least do better than we might have otherwise? J.B. Phillips, the great English writer, wrote a modern version of the Beatitudes that he said are probably more realistic. Listen to his version. He uses the word happy to translate. He says, happy are the pushers, for they get on in the world. Happy are the hard-boiled, for they never let life hurt them. Happy are they who complain, for they get their own way. Happy are the blasé, for they never worry over their sins. Happy are the slave drivers, for they get results. Happy are the knowledgeable men and women of the world, for they know their way around. Happy are the troublemakers, for they make people take notice of them. Is that a little more realistic? A little more honest in terms of the way we live and maybe teach our children and model for them? How do you deal with this seemingly impossible demand of the Sermon of the Mount and real life? How do you translate that demand into real life? To me, that's a really tough question, and I've wrestled with it my whole life. I'm sure many of you have. I talk about that in the book in terms of how we think about our time and our talent and our money. But ultimately, we know we know before we even start that we're going to fail in terms of that standard. So how do we deal with that? How do we live with that? That disconnect between the seemingly impossible demand of the ethic of Jesus and real everyday life. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> again, I don't pretend to have an easy answer. But as I've lived my life and thought about this, there is one passage of scripture that has become more and more meaningful to me. And when I use the word meaningful, I'm, I'm not using it in a glib way. I mean, it is a passage that, on the one hand, I find somewhat comforting, and a passage, on the other hand, that I find absolutely terrifying. And I'm referring to the parable of final judgment as recorded in Matthew 25. And I begin the last chapter of the book by quoting that parable, and I want to read it again for you now, the first part of it. And I want you to listen to this. You've heard it before, most of you, many times. But I want you to listen to this with the following question in mind. If you were going to sort of design the final exam on Judgment Day, what would you put in it? What kind of questions do you think we should be asked about how we've lived? And then think about what Jesus says about what final judgment is going to be like. When the Son of Man comes as king and all the angels with him, he will sit on his royal throne and the people of all the nations will be gathered before him. Then he will divide them into two groups, just as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the righteous people at his right and the others at his left. Then the king will say to the people on his right, Come, you that are blessed by my Father, come and possess the kingdom which has been prepared for you ever since the creation of the world. I was hungry and you fed me, thirsty and you gave me a drink. I was a stranger and you received me in your homes, naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you took care of me, in prison and you visited me. The righteous will then answer him, when, Lord, did we ever see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we ever see you a stranger and welcome you in our homes or naked and clothe you? When did we ever see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you, whenever you did this for one of the least important of these brothers of mine, you did it for me. Notice what 
is not in Jesus' version of the final exam. There's no mention of fame or fortune. That's not really very surprising given Jesus' teachings. But there's no mention of correct thinking. There's nothing about memorizing certain Bible verses or knowing certain creeds, being able to use certain language. Nothing. There's nothing in there about so-called moral values. Ooh. All the things that we spend so much time talking about in our political campaigns, nothing. There's nothing in there even about the religious life, reading the scriptures, praying, worshiping, nothing. Now, before you run me out on a rail here, I'm not saying these issues are not important, but I am saying that when Jesus took the time to most extensively describe final judgment, as he does in this parable, probably his last parable, he leaves all that stuff out. And he focuses on one thing, which is how did we treat the least among us? As simple and as complicated as that. How did we treat the least, the left out, the lonely, the leper? I'm going to tell you a little about my daughter. I talk about her in the book with her permission. Uh, our daughter gave us fits growing up. I know none of you had children like that, but <clears throat> we happened to. She never studied. She barely graduated from high school. She went off to San Francisco with some friends and after two years called us up one day and said she had decided she wanted to be a physical therapist. And she came home and lived with us went back to college, got into a junior college with her bad record, and for the first time in her life studied, and went on to graduate with honors, and went on and got a doctorate in physical therapy. And she now works with uh, traumatic brain injured patients. But here's, here's what I really admire about my daughter. She takes all her vacation time every summer and goes and works at a camp for handicapped people. After working as a physical therapist, she does this with her vacation done that for about six years now. My daughter doesn't go to church, and I wish she would. But I have a feeling that on Judgment Day, she's going to do better than I am. If, if this is what it's about. And here's the thing. We, we maybe can't keep up with the Sermon on the Mount, but every one of us, every one of us, every day, comes in contact with people who we might inappropriately described as the least among us. And therefore, every day, we have an opportunity to decide how we're going to treat those people, just in simple ways of courtesy or recognition, or maybe in more profound ways of help when it becomes possible. Now, for me, the discipline turns into something that I'm able to do because of my position. I get calls and emails all the time from friends and friends of friends who have medical problems, desperate medical problems, very often. And I have made it a commitment to, to try to answer those requests, not because I'm a goody-goody, but because I just think this parable requires it of me. That's the ability I happen to have, the knowledge I happen to have, so that's what I do. I discipline myself. I, I say this is my ministry, even when I don't feel like it, and that's quite often, to be honest. All of us have the ability, out of our skills, out of our well of faith, to do something for the least among us, whoever they happen to be. And that's, I think, how ultimately we can find the face of God. Thank you. Thank you very much, Dr. Johnson. You can rest your voice for a second. I've got just a few announcements here. Uh, first of all, I want to draw your attention to the next event. Uh, it's on November 14th, Faith and Silence, with a woman named Ruth Haley Barton. Um, she is the president of the Transforming Center 
which focuses on retreats, and she's written a number of books uh, about silence and solitude, some of which are available tonight. I actually went on a retreat with her last February. She was fabulous, and I hope you'll join us for that again. Um, November 14th, that's at the Plymouth Creek Center uh, here in Plymouth. If you would like to be reminded of that, uh, by email, which is a very efficient and cost-effective way for us to communicate with you. I would invite you to turn these green sheets in. Uh, you can also note your uh, thoughts about tonight's talk or ideas for future talks on this uh, green sheet. Uh, the email form is at the very bottom. You don't have to give us your name, but if you give us your email, we'll send out periodic reminders. I promise we won't um, fill your inbox every week. Uh, these can be placed on some tables out in the narthex as you leave. Finally, uh, you are here tonight um, free of charge thanks to the generosity of many, many people and organizations. They are listed in your program tonight, and we couldn't do this work without them. I'll name uh, minimally the um, corporate sponsors at least, Thrivent Financial for Lutherans, the St. Philip the Deacon Foundation, Kane Company, Anchor Bank, Leaders Manufacturing, Fuzzy Duck Design, and the Bookcase, which is helping us with book sales, and then of course the two churches uh, which together partner to present this, as well as all of the individuals who are listed. Uh, again, you are here because of the generosity of these people, these organizations, at no cost, and many of them are here. I think it's uh, appropriate that we give them our thanks. Okay, we're going to take a few minutes now for uh, any questions you might have. John here has got one microphone, and I'll walk around with mine, um, and we'll try to get as many in as we can. Good evening. Thank you for coming. Uh, I'm of the Baptist persuasion, and my sister married a covenant minister, whom you know, but we'll talk about that later. But anyway... Uh, growing up uh, in the Baptist Church, and I think to some degree uh, in the Covenant, uh, we have tended to give God human characteristics. We keep talking about he and him and so on. And I think we run into problems then because God doesn't act that like we think he should. And I think that's one of the problems that a lot of us are struggling with, particularly in the area of uh, uh, disasters and sickness and, and so on. And then as a follow-up on that, uh, what happens then is that uh, we begin to believe our interpretations of Scripture, whether it be Baptist, Lutheran, or wherever seminary, we begin to believe our interpretations rather than what Jesus actually said. And I think you kind of alluded to that uh, tonight, that uh, that can be a problem for, uh, for a lot of us. Thank you. This is still working? Okay. I think it was William Sloan Coffin who once said that many people use the scriptures like a drunk uses a light post for support rather than illumination. <laughs> and we do that, all of us, yes. We, we can find scriptures that support our position. Um, and we use it as an argument rather than as a blessing when we do that. We've got one over here. Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for sharing your faith journey. Where are you? I can't find you. Over here. Oh, okay. Uh, I have tremendous respect and affirmation and uh, admiration for physicians who have been able to successfully cross the line between medical science and faith. I graduated from UCLA School of Medicine in 1991, and even though I was born and raised in a Christian family, I only started my spiritual journey five years ago <laughs> as a follower of Christ. And looking back at my training, I was appalled by the fact that out of those thousands of hours <laughs> of lecture and teaching time, there were no minutes devoted to faith. Have any of our great country's medical schools been able <laughs> to cross the line as you have and merge those two important things together the way they should be? What was the last part of your question, the very last part? 
Are there any medical schools in this country that can yet incorporate a discussion of faith in the doctor-patient relationship? I, the honest answer is I can't tell you for sure. I, I do know that many medical schools today are doing a better job uh, in electives about giving opportunities for people to talk about the role of faith in the healing process. That is to say, not to talk about any formal religious belief per se, but to learn how to respect a patient's desire to talk about their own faith or be ministered to by their own faith. Um, and where it's happening more often is in hospital programs where the chaplain's office has taken the lead in this effort. For example, uh, there has been a program now for many years that the Mass General mentioned earlier in Boston where the chaplain's office will take on staff members of all backgrounds of faith or no faith and give them, as it were, some training uh, over a period of time in how to interact with patients on the issue of faith. My guess is, and I, I have not done a survey to, to find this out, that that happens more often at the hospital level than it does at the medical school level for fairly obvious reasons. I will say this, that when I went to medical school in the 1960s, there was very little recognition on the part of physicians about the role of faith. Today, even among physicians who are agnostic or atheistic, there is a respect uh, much more than I think was back in, uh, the, the case, excuse me, back in the 1960s about the role of faith. So I see that happening, but not much in the formal medical school curriculum. I have a question here from someone who wanted me to read it for them. Uh, it's, uh, is it true, honest faith if you only do good deeds out of fear that Judgment Day brings? How do we switch from selfish good deeds to giving and being generous from our hearts instead of doing good deeds out of fear? <laughs> Great question. A little fear isn't all bad. <laughs> But in all seriousness, uh, I don't think that's exactly what God is looking for. Um, and, and, you know, I think it's very hard for us to intuit ourselves sometimes the motivations for what we do. Uh, we're a fairly biased judge of ourselves in most cases. So I think it's very helpful if you can find such a person to have a kind of a spiritual partner in life, uh, somebody who really knows you well and who will be totally honest in a loving way with you, somebody who can uh, trim away the excessive sprouts of ego without destroying its honorable essence, if I can put it that way. Uh, I happen to have several friends of that sort, and they are worth their weight in gold. And I think that's one way to try to struggle with that, that very basic question. There's a question way in the back there, I can see. And while you're getting there, I was just thinking about science. And, you know, I, I, I've never struggled, and this probably says something about me, I've never really struggled with the so-called battle between science and religion. Ever since I was a kid, I, I've always somehow intuitively felt that, that these are simply and ultimately very profoundly different ways of looking at reality. So, for example, I love the, the little analogy about uh, that John Polkinghorne, who, by the way, is a wonderful writer, uh, uh, an English uh, Episcopal priest and particle physicist, uh, written some remarkable books that I actually mentioned in my bibliography. He once used the following analogy. He said, suppose there's a pot of water boiling in my home, and, and you ask me, why is that water boiling? And I can answer one of two ways. I can say, well, the water is boiling because the heat underneath has stirred up the water molecules and they're racing around and they're producing turbulence that leads to a boil. Or I can answer your question, why is that water boiling, by simply saying, because I wanted a cup of tea. <laughs> Both answers are absolutely true. But they're asking different questions or answering different questions. Science traditionally tries to answer questions about how. And religion typically tries to answer questions about why. But they're both struggling with the same reality. Anyway, I think you've got a microphone now. Thank you. Can you hear me? I can. Are 
our women's Bible study has been studying your book for the last months, and we've just enjoyed it so much. And at the end, you talk about how you're changing your life, and you were inspired by Dr. Schweitzer and some other things. And I'm just wondering, after getting to the end, what did happen? Yeah. It's, it's a very fair question, and I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to say that nothing terribly dramatic yet. Um, and, and I really have struggled with this, and there are a few people in this audience tonight who know how much I have struggled with it. But uh, <clears throat> when I came to the end of that period that I was alluding to, that was about a year ago now, when my contract ran out, I decided to stay on, as I keep saying, one more year because I have become so passionate about the issue of health care reform. I could, I could talk for hours about health care reform. So don't ask me any questions about it. <laughs> you'll, you'll get me going. But uh, ABC News has made a, a, a deep commitment to covering this issue. And we were going to cover it intensively during the election, but it's fallen a bit off the map for other reasons, obviously, for the moment. Um, but we intend to really take a hard look at that during the next year, the first year of the new administration, whoever it is. And so. I've sort of rationalized, and maybe that's what it is. You can judge if you want. Uh, staying on by saying I have a great opportunity. Not many people get to work for a news network where they can address an issue of that importance. So I'm going to do at least one more year, and then we'll see what happens. In the meantime, I have cut back somewhat on my schedule. Uh, supposedly, three days a week doesn't always work out. And, and I do consciously try to use some of that extra time to do more of what I alluded to earlier, which is uh, answer questions that people have for me. I'll, I spend many hours every week doing that. That's part of my ministry. I'm going to leave you with a quote from Einstein, my, my hero, my intellectual hero. Einstein once said, I've got to stop and think about this. He said, religion without science is blind. Science without religion is lame. There you have it. Before you all head out, although some of you are some of you really want to see the Twins game, I know. Um, thank you so much for being with us. We give each of our speakers a little token of appreciation, which I'd like to give you now. It's a piece of granite with the Faith in Life logo, and it says simply, with thanks to Dr. Timothy Johnson for bringing faith to life, and we do thank you indeed very much.